0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight
2: loss. Hi again. I'm Sarah Bell, and you're listening to Sorry Partner.
3: Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we feature part two of our interview with English champion Sarah Bell, who talks about realistic but positive pep talks, the debate over cards versus tablets and her favorite bridge books. Plus, she shares her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? I'm great, Catherine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I I would like to introduce you to a new term,
1: NPA. NPA. non public administration
3: that's it actually no no No. it's 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 new partner anxiety oh
1: oh yes
3: yes NPA this is where I find myself this week because I am about to play with a new partner for the first time and I can't tell you the range of thoughts I've had about this I'm looking forward to it but I'm so not looking forward to it all the build-up to it, it's just irritating me, which is so phenomenally unreasonable. I, I just don't understand myself. I think it's mostly about the card. I am so in love with our system. I that know. It just annoys me to have to play anything, anything else. else. Anything and I, else. Anything else I find illogical and ridiculous. And it's like, oh, God. okay. And look. I have, I've, I've I've mostly interacted with this person by email and have one conversation and they are very nice and they are so amenable and they've been prepared to change this and do this but you know you can't start saying oh I want you to do you know like you know all our splinters and our this is and our that you just can't do it so so there's that element of it and then there's this other element of it which is even while we're trying to you know figure out or agree to some kind of system that we're going to play I'm really mindful because I now have quite the history of playing with with many people in many situations that it's never that first game really that's the issue that the the problems start to rear their heads on games two and three or you know in three months or whatever
1: interesting I'm just thinking oh you're okay you're in for a slog yeah you're in you're in for you're you're It's it's not just a one.
3: No, and 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 it's like great. Maybe this is going to be really great, and you know we always hope it's going to be really great. But let's be honest, how often is it really great?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, is there any way that you can just be like, I am going to be easy breezy. (laughs) I'm just going to see what happens. No expectations and no pressure. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like you, Catherine. I know that's me. Well, I had to play on um, Sunday. It was lovely. I was invited to a house game where I played with 12 different partners over the course of the day. So you played two boards with each partner and there is absolutely no time to get aligned on a card. And of course I had NPA 12 times. Actually, no, two of the people are semi-regular partners with whom I have detailed cards so that part was okay, except for I had to remember because they're, you know, different from everybody else, each of them. Um, but so that was 10 NPAs. Um, and yeah, it it, it is, you want to make a good impression. You want to have a successful game. You want to communicate with partner. Um, you want to make it as easy as possible, but you also don't want it to be like, I don't know. I mean you want to make it as easy as possible for your partner to understand your bids and make decisions that make sense but it's super stressful. I was stressed out. I think everybody else was having a lovely, enjoyable, relaxing time mm-hmm. and I was all stressed out because I had NPA 10 times yeah. in a day.
3: Yeah. Oh wow. Well, maybe then you won't need to have it for another five mm-hmm.
1: years. <laughs> I doubt any of those 10 people will want to play with me again.
3: Well, I was but. about to say, was it a bit like <laughs> speed dating? Were there any of them potential?
1: You know, it was such a blur. Yeah. Um, I wasn't even, I actually wasn't even thinking about that. I was just like, this is stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just get through it kind of thing? And then it was such a relief. The two times I got to play with people with whom I have an established partnership, it, it just felt like I such a, a, a lovely relief. So this is not my cup of tea either, but I I enjoyed it and I was very glad to be invited. And in fact, I know some of the people who were there are listeners. So please don't take this as (laughs) any indication that I wasn't super thrilled to be there. It just was more anxiety producing than perhaps it should have been. Well, as you know, I hope you're my favorite partner and seeing you today just makes
3: me look forward to the next time we're playing even more me too I can't wait so Jocelyn
1: have been digging around in the mailbag and we have some letters oh phew I was worried you were digging and not finding anything no no no, no
3: our listeners have come through there are two letters for us this week
1: our first letter is
3: from Frank who we've met yes hi Frank hi Frank Frank writes to us about playing against the Mechstroths. In the 9am speedball on BBO, I've often noticed the Mechstroths and looked forward to playing around against them sometime. It happened this week. We started out okay in five hearts, making six, but 82%. Very nice. On the second board, I had a bigger hand, six three three one, with 15 points, and my partner opened one heart. I responded one spade and Jeff Mextroth overcalled four clubs. Hoping for a slam in either hearts and spades, I temporized with four diamonds, ready to bid key card for no trump if my partner bid hearts or spades. But he passed. By some miracle with our seven card fit, I made four diamonds, but lost to all the pairs in the heart game or setting five clubs doubled down three. 17% for us. Mm. On the third board, I had a still bigger hand and decided to open two no-trump, after which I noticed that Sally Meckstroth on my right had already opened one diamond. I gallantly alerted my bid as clubs and hearts, which is what it ought to be. My partner responded three hearts. Now what? I knew we should be in no-trump, so I bid it, with the slim hope that my partner might pass his non-sequitur. He bid four clubs. I couldn't stop below game. I bid four no Trump. He bid five clubs. He made it. But since most pairs were in three no Trump, making four, we got just 29%. I decided not to remind the Mextros that I knew them from playing against them on one of Larry Cohen's cruises.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, the Mextros, they're, they're just such wonderful people in the bridge world. We're so lucky.
3: Yeah, so lucky. Nice work, Frank even if it didn't work out. So nice to have that experience. Now, next letter today, Jocelyn, is from Jill in Australia. I, I have met Jill. Jill was living in Melbourne, but she now lives in Queensland, which is further north. She writes, hi, Catherine and Jocelyn. Thanks for the great podcast. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks Jill. Jill. I am an American who has lived in Australia since 1995 and only took up the game when I moved there. Funny story from my first year of Bridge, I was essentially a novice and knew nothing about the Bridge world. I had no clue about master point rankings and was unaware that there were pros and sponsors. One night at our club in Melbourne, they were announcing rank promotions and mentioned that one of the members, Andrew, was recently promoted to Silver National Master, which was not a particularly high rank here in Australia, but I had no idea and was impressed. I was then incredibly flattered when this Andrew asked me to play in the Victorian Open Pairs, which was a prestigious evening competition held over four weeks. I was so nervous that I took the day off work so that I could be well rested. It's very cute, Jill. The first night, for whatever reason, we walked on water. Every pair, even the top players, just happened to have their mishaps when we were with them. One expert pair let me make an unmakeable three-no-trump and were fuming at each other. Despite our complete ineptitude, we got top after top. We then arrived at a table where our ops were a friendly American guy named Bobby and his partner, an elderly Australian chap whose name I have forgotten. They had an auction to six spades which involved Roman keycard Blackwood, a convention I had only learned that week. I knew about 3014 key card, but had never heard that some played 1430 instead. Bobby and his partner had apparently not discussed which variant they used, and they were clearly each playing a different method and landed in six spades off two key cards and went down, which was yet another top for us. Because Bobby was American and friendly, we got chatting after the hand, and before the next movement was called, I said to him, not knowing that there were two types of keycard and thinking that they'd just messed up, you know, I have a really good way to remember keycard. Five clubs is zero or three and a club has three leaves. Five diamonds is one or four and a diamond has four sides. Bobby looked at me with a friendly smile and said, hey, that's really good. I will remember that. Thank you. And we moved to the next table. After moving along, my partner informed me that I, a novice, had just been coaching Bobby Richmond, one of the top (laughs) players in Australia, (laughs) and a highly regarded professional who'd been playing with a sponsor. I smiled back at Bobby sheepishly. I was so impressed by his graciousness, his modesty, and his sense of humor. He was confident enough not to feel the need to put me in my place and understood that I meant well. Over the subsequent years, as I improved at the game, we encountered one another often at the table. I never saw him behave anything other than graciously and with good humor. Bobby was a legend. He passed away a few years ago, but will always be remembered with love and respect by the Australian bridge community. And I can claim the distinction of teaching him Roman Kidcard Card Blackwood. <laughs> Not. <laughs> <Jill>.
1: <laughs> I love that story. Oh my God. Just the... Can you imagine the horror that you would feel <laughs> <laughs> when you realize what you had done? Oh, oh mortifying, modifying. So funny. So if you have any stories about playing against experts, whether you know them to be experts or perhaps don't yet realize that they are experts, please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at podcast on Instagram, or you can tweet them to us at sorry underscore partner, or you can send us a voice message. These links are in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, part two of our interview with Sarah Bell. English champion Sarah Bell learned to play bridge in high school. She first represented England on the junior squad in the European teams in 2009 and made many subsequent appearances for the under-26 women's and under-26 open sides. She is now a mainstay in the open, mixed, and women's fields and was a recent recipient of the English Bridge Union Bronze Award in recognition of her work with the Online Ethics Investigation Group. We began part two of our interview by asking what can be done to get more women playing at the highest echelons of the game.
2: I think that Mixed Bridge is going to be really, really good for that. I've long been a huge fan of Junior Women's Bridge, simply because I don't think I'd still play Bridge if it hadn't existed when I was young. I was sort of very aware of a lot of sexism in Junior Bridge when I was starting the game. And I think I quite quickly would have decided that I could find another hobby if I hadn't sort of had that sort of women's only space to be able to go and play in. At the same time, if you're looking at sort of non-junior level, sort of the women's game always has a little bit of a tension in that it simultaneously gives women a route into the game and a way to play internationally and sort of a way to get to know each other and to sort of form, you know, something of a network and a community and to really encourage women into bridge and international at an international level. But at the same time, it can also be a tool by which women are held back. And I've really felt that tension since I've stopped playing as a junior. Whereas I think Mixed Bridge kind of releases a little bit of that. It means women are now more able to play International Bridge in their strongest partnership whether that's with another man, with another woman or with a man. It provides another way into international bridge for them. And if they've got a greater choice of partners in international bridge, then of course you're going to see stronger partnerships involving women coming out of that. And I think cross-pollination is broadly a good thing. You don't have a sort of very segregated men's game and women's game. And I know that it's not men's, it's open, but in practice there aren't many women there which can lead to two sort of quite different fields and quite different styles and ways of approaching the game. Whereas having a crossover area allows a little bit more movement, I think. So I think that Mixed Bridge is going to be really good for women in bridge, not just because I get to play with
3: my husband, although that's quite convenient. Do you have a favorite tournament that you like to play?
2: Um, so Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit biased because I'm a Brit, but a tournament that I've always really enjoyed has been Spring Force.:
3: Can you tell us more about that tournament?
2: Yeah, I mean, I love the format of it because it's a double knockout. They do it slightly differently year on year, depending on how many teams are entered. So it's a knockout where you have two lives. And I like that because it means you can, firstly, you can stay in the event for longer. But also it means you normally get the chance to play. So if you're coming in as a new team, you often get the chance to play against someone quite strong. So that's great. There is bridge for the whole time even if you're knocked out. So there are other events to play. But also I think that for me, it's a great event because it's both very, very competitive with a lot of very strong teams, but also incredibly sociable. The venue hotel has been where most people have stayed. So that means that if you go to the bar in the evening, a lot of the bridge players will be there and it's very sociable. You can talk about the hands, but you can also just be people hanging out together. And I really like that you have a really high-level event, but also it is a friendly, sociable event at the same time. And for me, that's perfect. Is there a bridge book that has had the most impact on you? I think I might disappoint you here, which is that I didn't really read bridge books. I know that that's basically complete sacrilege to say that. I actually find it really hard to sit down and focus on a book for any length of time. So I tend to keep reading quite short. And most of the way in which I develop my game is by playing and then talking about the hands. Um, The one bridge book I've really enjoyed reading was Bridge with the Blue Team, just because it was a book that I read sort of quite early on in my bridge career. And I think it was, the way it was written was really engaging, it was really interesting. But the hands were beautiful. And I think it was, for me, a first introduction to what that kind of bridge could look like, even though obviously things like auctions are quite dated now. But so the idea of these sort of really elegant card play positions was quite new to me and I really enjoyed. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got
1: sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
3: Uh, Can you tell us more about what the book focuses on?
2: So Bridge with the Blue Team is a book. um, It was written by 4K. And he was a member of the Italian Blue Team, which was a hugely successful bridge team. They represented Italy. They won... A ridiculous number of world titles in sort of the 60s, um, sort of mid to late 60s. And they won basically everything inside. I mean, the book is, it's almost like a story of his journey through playing bridge. So he'll sort of talk about a tournament and then tell you a little bit about some hands from it. And it gives you a sense of feeling like you're there. And I'm sure with all these things, there's a lot of sort of editing that happens. And You know, in practice, hands get borrowed and moved across from different things to make it flow nicely, but it does flow nicely. And it feels like a much easier read than it actually is. So with a lot of books that are quite technical, they can be really hard to wade through. Whereas this one I found quite straightforward and that you could look at it and try to solve it as a problem. You could also just read it sort of as a bridge story and just say, oh, I wonder what you did do on this hand rather than challenging yourself to think, well, what is the right line? And the fact that you could do either of those things was quite helpful. It makes it a bit more accessible. You could start by just reading it through and seeing, well, what did he do? What did happen? Oh, isn't that beautiful? Rather than it being a really high-level puzzle book, which is sort of something that I think a lot of people would find quite daunting. But I had, um, speaking of very high-level puzzle books, I acquired a copy some years ago of, of Adventures in Cardplay which I think every bridge player at some point manages to stare at from a distance. (laughs) I brought it with me to Spring Fours, and uh, my husband was playing on Team Ulfrey at the time, and Tony Forrester was one of his teammates. And I didn't know Tony particularly well, but obviously he was very friendly. And I was sitting out at the same time as him, just by chance in one set. And I was sitting in the bar holding this book, sort of going probably crack this open at some point, at least look like I'm going to try to read it. And Tony came up and he sat with me and he, he got some tea and he sat down. And he said, right, let's look at some of these hands together. And we spent about an hour just sitting. We only actually looked at the first hand. Uh, we didn't get any further than that, but we looked at the hand. He talked me through it. We chatted about it. He sort of gave me some similar positions to show me how this hand might come up in a way that was more normal. Um, rather than a sort of very niche example of something. And for me, that was probably one of my nicest bridge memories, that this person that I really looked up to took the time to do that for someone he really didn't know. So that was really lovely.
3: Thinking about all the people that you come across in the bridge community, who's been the most intriguing or interesting or unexpected or whatever person who's stayed in your memory at a tournament or in the course of your bridge life?
2: I think there are a lot of people who make, who've made a big impression on me, but in a lot of different ways and for different reasons. Someone that I always enjoy seeing at tournaments and watching is Zia, uh, which I think could be quite a common answer. But he's, I mean, he loves having people watching him and he knows how to, he sort of knows how to read the room and like have a good tone at the table. That, you know, if it's a more relaxed event, he'll be quite chatty. Obviously, if it's a serious event, he understands when not to be. But whenever you watch him, something interesting happens. So I really enjoy that.
3: We spoke to Zia a little while ago now, and we were really interested in the way that he was able to apply psychology to his game. I'm just thinking about you in terms of a tough tournament. If you're under pressure, do you draw on any particular devices or mental tools to handle those situations?
2: I actually have um, a bridge playing friend who I phone up and say, can you give me a pep talk? (laughs) And what do they say to you? I don't even know, but somehow always the right thing. (laughs) Whatever it is, the right thing. But seriously, what would they say to you? What would the right thing be for you? It would be something like, um, I don't know, it would be realistic but positive. So something like, you know, with these bad things have happened, but you're still in it. You know, if these good things happen, hopefully we are still in it. And maybe he's telling me what I need to do. So something practical you can hold on to. So something like trust your instincts and believe that you can do this and you are a better player than whoever it is is sitting to your left and right. It doesn't matter if that's not true. You have to be told that. <laughs> and I guess you need someone who's going to put you into the mindset that winning this match is within your control and that you can do this personally not by kind of doing big and fancy things until you get a 24-imp swing but just by playing your best game that is good enough and what you want is that if someone's going to give you a pep talk you want them to give you that sense that if you do your best that is good enough.
3: Do you remember the first time that you were hired to play either with a client or on a team?
2: Oh, I need to think about that. I can certainly think of early times. The first, I'm not sure I remember, but certainly I can remember the vague first rather than the literal first. That was a really odd experience for me because I had this sense that this was a normal thing because I was surrounded by bridge professionals. That was very much a world that I sort of had a bit of a toe in. But at the same time, it seemed odd to me that anyone would want to hear what I had to say about the game. And the playing wasn't actually such an issue in that I think most people are able to convince themselves that they're pretty good players, even when they're not. And that was certainly true for me. (laughs) But the idea that someone would actually want to play a duplicate with me and sit down and ask me to go through the hands with them, that that was quite odd to me. Um, whereas normally I would sit down with friends and we'd discuss it together. So yeah, that, that was odd. But I felt, I remember feeling really happy though, and I really enjoyed it. But was it odd partly because it was a change of status? Yes. And I think with any change of status like that, there's a fair amount of imposter syndrome that creeps in. And I think something I had to be reminded of a few times was just because I don't feel like I'm as good as I don't know, or just because I'm not as good as X top player doesn't mean that I can't do this. Because, I mean, there's a whole world of bridge players between Helgamo and anybody else. And you don't have to be Helgamo in order to be hired. And in order for that to be completely reasonable and appropriate. So I think when I first started getting hired, I had a sense that I wasn't good enough because I wasn't the absolute best. And Obviously, the only thing you can do then is try to keep in your head that there's a lot of room in the world for people who aren't the absolute best. And that's something I try to remind my students of a lot.
1: What's the most annoying thing
2: about bridge? I find it frustrating that something about playing cards seems to bring out the worst in a lot of people. That there are a lot of people who, for example, treat their partner in a way that they would never treat any other person in any other context but it's somehow okay if it's at the bridge table. And I dislike that. Um, you see it to a lesser extent with people as teammates, um, although that's not as common, but it can happen. And you can also see that there can be a lot of politics around bridge teams. And that's not really me at all. I'm sort of, I see myself as a very straightforward person. And anytime sort of sort of social politics happening, I find that quite stressful. And so I guess if I could cut any part of the game out, it would be that part.
3: Is there an issue in Bridge that's really important to you? Something that you feel passionately about?
2: Um, something that's very much on my mind at the moment is this shift to possibly using tablets. So I know that the ACBL is looking at using tablets, at least in some tournaments and some late stages. And on a personal note, I can consider that doesn't necessarily affect me immediately um, because I don't do a large portion of my play in America. At the same time, I don't really feel that's a direction I want to see Bridge going in. I fully understand security concerns and that it does sort of negate a lot of those. But for me, the idea of sitting in a hotel room with my screen mate and not having sort of that social interaction at the table... That takes a lot of the joy out of the game. So for me, I'm not sure that that's a direction that I'm super keen on. And certainly if so, sort of a lot of you know European and world championships start to go that route, uh, I think that would take a lot of the enjoyment of it away from me. And I also think, feel that while security concerns are a concern, there is also the flip side, where do you really want to allow people who are behaving unethically to change the face of the game in that way? Obviously, there are two sides to this. I mean, you know, airports, we all go through security scanners and throw our water bottles away because it makes the flight more secure. But at the same time, you kind of think, well, there's a limit to what you'd put up with before you stop flying, right? And yeah, I'll definitely give them a go. So if I'm entering a tournament, well, that's a thing, but it doesn't make me feel great.
1: Do you have a favorite bridge convention or gadget?
2: Takeout doubles? (laughs) I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually true. Because for me, I think most people don't even really realize that takeout doubles are a convention. But obviously, when you first, first, first learn the game, I mean, I didn't go to any sort of classes. I just sort of learned to play with some friends. So the idea of artificial bidding was completely alien. I mean, we're talking the sort of bidding system where you wouldn't discuss like, what does a two over one mean? Because two over one wasn't a concept. The the idea that responding at the two level is different from responding at the one level was just a concept that didn't exist. Like you responded with six points, whether your response was two clubs or one spade or whatever. (laughs) Um, So when I first met Takeout Doubles, that was for me a moment where I really appreciated the game differently because it was the first time I had a tool that solved a problem I could see in front of me because I knew that I had to have five cards in a suit to overcall. and I knew that I kept picking up hands where I couldn't overcall and I didn't want to pass. So that was the first time I saw that you could set up a system of bidding in a way that suited problems you're facing at the table and solve them. And really, that's what systems should be doing. And also, I get to make them a lot.
1: Is there a convention that you really deplore?
2: I really hate (laughs) Gazilli. It's not the cool thing to say. Everybody loves Gazzilli. I do not love <laughs> Gazzilli. <laughs> Why not? Well, I did once hear someone say they thought it was like the Emperor's New Clothes, that everyone sort of pretended to love it, but no one really wanted to say the truth. Um, but I think people actually do love it. I mean, I've no, I haven't played it in any serious partnerships, so I might be prejudging, but I've played it a bit. And from where I'm sitting, it feels to me like it works well on the big hands, where you have now all the space to figure out where you're going to go but it deposits you in a part score at random when you're not going to game. And I, I guess I just feel that, yeah, on the hands that aren't the big hands, you end up playing a fairly randomly selected part score. And I think that there's more mileage in playing in the correct part score than that allows for.
1: I mean, I'll just say that Catherine taught it to me and we love it. So we <laughs> get a big kick out of when our when our guests say that they love Gazilli. <laughs> but we also get a big kick because you're not the first to say that it's the one that you would pick out that you really dislike, so you know we're gazilli fans and love hearing all of everyone else's opinions about it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that it pleases you, <laughs> and we've got a we've got some listeners who have picked it up because of what they've heard on the show, which is kind of a kick as well.
2: They seem to like it. Everyone who plays it likes
1: it, but I just don't, I just... I think a lot of people have been very frustrated about what to do when you have these in-between hands and you, you're you interested in going on if partner has a certain value, but not
2: otherwise. And I think it just solves that problem. It solves a problem that people are very aware of and that yes. they feel very bad when it goes wrong. And it's great when it comes up, is the thing. like When you actually get to make the Two Club Two Diamond... It's going well, I and mean, it depends. Obviously, there are lots of variants. My objection is not on the good hands. It's that on the bad hands, you just lose precision in where you land up, and you often end up guessing. I guess I haven't appreciated that
1: drawback to it so much. It seems like you might end up in a 5-1 major fit, which is not ideal, but it's not hideous.
2: It can be hideous. <laughs> But I mean, it also depends a bit on the form of scoring you favor. I mean, at match points, that could be an absolute disaster. Right. At, at, At imps, it's not so bad, right? But it also depends what the alternative is. I mean, it is solving a problem. At the same time, you can structure systems in different ways to approach these hands. I mean, I don't do anything particularly fancy, but I don't feel that I lose large numbers of imps because I don't get these hands to game when I need to.
3: What is the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given or that you can share with us?
2: Um, I was given a piece of advice when I was a junior, which really stuck with me, and I really took it to heart, which would be a piece of advice that would be too late for me if I, started, if I was given it now. But it was really good, and it served me very well. And it was given to me by Heather Dondi, who said, play whatever carding and leads your partner wants you to, no matter what they are. Do it now while you're young and new to the game, because you'll get your head around all of it now and you'll be able to play it forever. And she is so right, because most people that I know struggle to play specifically the count that they're not used to. Attitude people can generally switch up. Count people struggle with. Lots of people struggle to switch away from their normal leads as well. They might have a couple that they're used to, but it's a bit awkward there. Whereas because she gave me this advice, I made an active effort to do exactly that. And to be comfortable playing all the standard card play methods without having to really think a lot about it. And firstly, it's nice to just be able to do whatever and not not have to worry. It also opens up a lot more options in terms of partnership. A lot of people are really wedded to their way of carding and actually being able to be flexible gives you more options. Um, it also is a great trade um, because if you say to your partner, I'll play reverse count for you, but you have to play this. They will agree to anything <laughs> because they do not want to have to play standard count.
1: What is it that you might trade for?
2: Not having puppet statement over two no trumps. <laughs> not playing Gazzilli. Um Although you can normally get off things like that by claiming you don't know it. I've never played it before. I'm sure I'll mess it up. Best to keep it simple.
3: <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Sarah. It was terrific.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It was lovely to talk to you both.
1: And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Sarah Bell. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner posse of listener supporters who make the show possible.
3: Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Jade Gray and David Turner. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Startz and produced by Daniel Graboi with additional music
1: by Elijah Meltzer. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider joining the Sorry Partner Posse that helps keep us on the air, so to speak. You'll get ad-free episodes, a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter perks. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on
3: side. And remember, as Sarah says, if you're new to the game, play whatever carding and leads your partner wants to play. Get your head around them now and you'll be able to play them forever. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. Bye. Bye.